Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to a History of Egypt podcast mini-episode. Songs of Praise takes a look at music, singing and instruments in the world of ancient Egyptian life. This episode is a real change of pace from the recent narrative, with plenty of songs and audio clips to illustrate what I'm talking about. We look at the instruments which survive from archaeological contexts, a noteworthy song that was recorded in lyrics, and listen to some recreations of ancient pieces. This episode is brought to you by Alan Chabot and Linda Mockenhaupt in gratitude for their support. Thank you kindly for donating, folks. May Hathor, Mistress of Music, Lady of the Sistrum, bring melody into your life and sing your praises. Before the modern era, there were five ways to make music. You could clap, sing, beat a drum, pluck a string, or blow through a pipe. From that simple set, orchestras were built and the great pieces composed. A thousand times a thousand instruments have been invented and refined, uncountable rhythms and melodies brought from the mind into the world. Music is the thrumming heartbeat of human work, of socialising and entertainment. In ancient Egypt, music was an ever-present aspect of life. Whether it was a party, a meal, a private recital, a funeral, a festival or a temple ritual, music and singing were frequent elements of any event. We have an abundance of records detailing when, how and why music was played. We even know the lyrics to some of the more prestigious or popular songs. Unfortunately, we simultaneously know a lot about Egyptian music, and also very little. We know what instruments were played, who made them, and what combinations they made, and what they did while making that music. But we still don't know how it sounded. Apart from some very basic ideas, there is a giant black hole at the centre of our musical knowledge. With that in mind, any attempt to explore ancient Egyptian music is missing the most important ingredient, the music itself. But we can say quite a lot about it, and thanks to some attempts at reconstruction, we can at least give a hint of how the ancients may have evoked their ideas in the form of melody and rhythm. 
To start with, we should know where music came from. As you can imagine, it was probably the work of the gods. Music had been invented by two gods in particular. Their names were Thoth and Merit, and each of them played a part in the organisation of the cosmos and the creation of the divine melodies. It was said that Merit, a minor goddess whose power was focused in the realm of singing, had created the cosmic order, or Ma'at, by means of her music. She used singing, melody, and hand gestures to fashion this order. Merit's music created the cosmic and divine system, quite a nice way to start a universe. After that, the great god Thoth came into the picture. Thoth looked upon Merit's music and saw that it was good. We are told by a Greek writer that Thoth sought to enhance the order which Merit had created. To do this, the great god, quote, observed the orderly arrangement of the stars and the harmony of the musical sounds and their nature. Then he made a lyre and gave it three strings, one string for each of the three seasons of the year. The high string was from the summer, the low from the winter, and the medium from the spring. End quote. Thoth took his instrument, a three-stringed lyre, and created the three seasons of the Egyptian year. So the harvest in summer, the flood in winter, and the planting in spring were also established by the mechanism of music. Putting the work of Thoth and Marit together, we can say that divine music was at the heart of life's pattern. It's rhythm, if you will. Now these stories of Thoth and Merit were created or recorded well after the Pharaonic era. But even if we take these later stories with a grain of salt, we can at least understand that on some level there was a powerful connection between music and the divine realm. In the major periods, the time of the pharaohs, at least three different gods were associated with music and singing. The greatest of musicians, the chief of melody, was the great goddess Hathor. The Lady of Fertility, Mother Supreme, Eye of Ray, and foremost of Westerners, Hathor was the celebrated queen of sexuality, drunkenness, and dancing. Naturally, those things are very much enhanced by the addition of music. Hathor was queen of the party scene, and her influence is found in both religious music and secular performances. As we will see throughout this episode, it is Hathor who plays the most important role in the creation and celebration of the divine, of melody. Rhythm and music are hers. If Hathor was the supreme musician, then Osiris was the archetypal connoisseur. Once again, a Greek writer, Diodorus Siculus, tells us of how Osiris and his fondness for melody, dancing, and performance created some of the great beings of the world. By the time Diodorus came along, around 60 BCE, Osiris had become intertwined with the Greek Dionysus, and this affected how the Egyptian god was represented by Greek writers. Dionysus and Osiris shared enough aspects that their mythology around them blurred together, and stories of one became stories of the other. With that in mind, Diodorus recounts how Osiris kept an entourage of musicians and performers, and how his travels throughout the world led to the creation of music as we know it. Diodorus tells us, quote, 
While Osiris was in Ethiopia, the Satyr people were brought to him, who they say have hair upon their loins. The satyrs were taken along on campaign because they were proficient in dancing and singing and every kind of relaxation and pastime. Osiris was fond of music and the dance, so he took with him a multitude of musicians. Among these were nine maidens who could sing, and these maidens were those whom the Greeks called the Muses. End quote. So Osiris, or Dionysus, was fond of music, and the famous Muses and Satyrs, the archetypal composers and dancers, were part of his entourage. This made music a part of Osiris's realm and his responsibility, at least in the minds of Greek writers. The final god who had a musical habit was the great Bess. Bess, master of home life and protector of children, often appears in art associated with music. In particular, Bess appears in reliefs of the Ptolemaic or Greek period, and here he is often associated with melody. Worshippers play tambourines and harps in his honour, and sometimes the god himself gets in on the fun. In his characteristically impish form, Bess can be seen playing lyres and dancing. In this respect, he is a lot like the Greek satyrs, and more than one scholar has suggested that the satyrs may have been influenced by the Egyptian Bess. If that's true, it would be another link between the traditions of Egypt and those of Dionysus, or Osiris. So Bess was part of the larger musical group, the god-musicians who reveled in song, melody, and dance. These musical gods are a select pantheon, to which, I say, we can add a few mortal figures. Among the beings who might have ascended to musical godhood, I would include names like Miles Davis, Michael Jackson, Boccherini, and Noodle of the band Gorillaz. These great figures, mostly dead, are surely enjoying the patronage of Osiris and being lauded for their skills throughout eternity. The great gods of music, Hathor, Merit, Thoth, Osiris, and Bess, are powerful figures in the pantheon, and their influence was felt in every corner of the land. Whether it was dancing and singing, or the playing of instruments for pleasure, these musician deities were a potent force in the pantheon. In life, music was an equally powerful force. Let's take a look at how that music was made, specifically the instruments which have survived, and what they tell us about the ancient songs. I mentioned earlier how music can be made in five ways, clapping, singing, drumming, plucking strings, and blowing through pipes. Clapping and singing are natural to the human form, but drumming, plucking, and blowing these require tools. Fortunately, a range of instruments survive in the archaeological record, and we are able to look at the flutes, harps, trumpets, and rattles of the ancient Egyptian players. Let's start with the flute. Ancient Egyptian flutes came in two varieties. One was a long pipe blown at one end, just like a modern flute. The other was a short pipe played in pairs. We call this latter one the double reed, and it may have sounded a bit like the modern oboe. The oboe tends to appear in religious contexts, where a priestess would play the instrument while a priest made offerings to the gods. 
It's possible that the oboe was meant to replace a human singer. The priest needed to concentrate on their words, so they couldn't have someone singing in the background. Or perhaps the oboe player was there to offer some melody and song in a sacred space, allowing music to sound without interrupting the ritual. Egyptian flutes were generally made of reeds, specifically cane reeds called arundo donax. This plant, often called bamboo, is the go-to plant for musical instruments. It is a manageable size, about 1 to 4 centimetres wide, and is extremely common in the Nile Valley. Technically, arundo donax is a weed, so the cane is abundant and easily accessed. On top of all that, it's durable. This excellent combination made cane reeds the standard material for Egyptian flute instruments. We're not exactly sure how the ancient flute sounded, only a few examples survive and they haven't been tested. But we do have a direct descendant, a form of flute that is called the ney. The ney flute is the instrument of modern Egypt, and it is played by many musicians working within the Arabic tradition. Here is an example of the ney played outside during the early morning hours. Perhaps an ancient flute sounded something like this. So that may be the basic sound of the Egyptian flute. The melody is hypothetical, but that breathy, shimmering wind is as close as we can readily get to the ancient sound. The modern ney flute is a lovely instrument, and it is descended from the ancient piece. We will hear this flute again in a few moments. The flute appears in many musical scenes. The flautists are both male and female, although they play in segregated groups, almost never mixed gender. The flautists have a very distinctive style depending on the period. In the Old Kingdom, we see male flautists playing long reeds held to their mouth like the modern flute. They rest on their knees, holding the flute across the body, and they play alongside their colleagues. In the New Kingdom, we see female players holding shorter flutes, but two at a time, one in each hand. Obviously, having two melodies at once would be a bit tricky, so it's possible that the usual method was to play a sort of drone on one flute, and the higher melody on the other. Kind of like a bagpipe today, you have that low note underneath everything, and then the more complex stuff goes on top. This is just a theory, but it would be a more straightforward way than trying to do two performances at once. Anyway, the flautists usually appear alongside other musicians, who keep time by clapping, or add more complexity with lyres or harps. 
A lovely, simple piece from the Old Kingdom shows a male flautist seated holding a long flute, while behind him a man claps along. In another scene, we have a flautist, a clapper, and a harpist, all playing together in a trio. Again, these Old Kingdom musicians are all male, and it's possible that the professions were originally gender-exclusive. This is hard to say, but the art scenes certainly seem to indicate some degree of segregation. Now one thing we don't see very often is the flautists playing alongside any drums. Drums are relatively rare in the domestic or religious scenes. They tend to appear with the military more often. Flutes, meanwhile, seem to be for more intimate settings, banquets, recreation, and temple worship. More often, flutes are accompanied by clapping than by drums, at least as far as the artwork suggests. That being said, a bit of soft drumming with light fingers can go very well with the modern nay flute. We'll hear a performance of that sound now to get a sense of how this may occasionally have been performed in the past. So that's a modern Egyptian flute and drum, but the principle might be similar for the ancients in some circumstances. Light drumming or clapping to give the flute some structure. The melody takes centre stage, and a wonderful sound is produced. The flautists are usually depicted in social settings, rather than big public affairs. Perhaps the flute was too quiet for large processions. After all, in a parade, the drums and trumpets would drown out most of the softer sounds. So when we see flutes, we see them in social gatherings, banquet halls, that kind of thing. Alongside them is the harp. Harps, or bennet, were common from the Old Kingdom all the way to the Ptolemaic era. More than two and a half thousand years of musicianship developed with this instrument. The harp, perhaps, is the quintessential elite instrument. Expensive to make, difficult to learn, and prestigious in composition. We know an awful lot about the Bennett harp, and have many surviving examples. The problem is, we still have no idea how it sounded. The Bennett harp was made of wood, curved in a shallow bow. At the bottom, which rested on the ground or the lap, A large bowl shape was covered with a thin membrane to create a hollow space. This resonating chamber gave much of the sound from the harp. The rest of the instrument was wood, like sycamore, and it could range from 50 centimetres long to as tall as a seated person. They were decorated with images of gods, animals, or kings, and were often painted as well. These were prestigious instruments, expensive and rare. The Egyptian harp had between four and nine strings. This would have given it a reasonable range of notes, but we have no idea how those strings were tuned. The strings on the surviving instruments have long since decayed, and figuring out the tightness of the tuning screws is guesswork at best. In theory, the harp could have been tuned to a variety of pitches for different settings, but we just have no idea what was used when. 
Reconstructing the harp is simple enough in outline, but getting the sound is still completely hypothetical. With that ambiguity in mind, some musicians have made efforts to revive these instruments, and we can now hear a sample of this work on a reconstructed harp. Once again, the melody and scale is hypothetical, but here is a wonderful evocation of those ancient sounds. The harp appears in domestic settings, banquets, social gatherings, and relaxation. The harpist often shows up along with the flautist and the clapper, and they may have worked together as a kind of trio. These pleasurable entertainments are common in the tomb paintings. As part of the deceased's eternal joys, images of music, feasting, dancing, and drinking adorn the hidden chambers. When they occur, these tomb scenes are usually accompanied by a caption which says something like, quote, Sitting down to divert the heart with a holiday in the interior of the house of eternity. In another one it says, quote, Sitting down in the hall to divert the heart according to the practice of existence on earth, perfumed with myrrh, adorned with garlands, making a holiday in his house of justification which he made for himself in the west of Thebes. End quote. Captions like these, along with the harpers themselves, indicate that the afterlife was ideally a place of music, perfumes, and holiday. The listener was encouraged to take comfort in their pleasures, and to, for a moment, forget the greater cares of the world. The harp was a popular form of entertainment. During the childhood of King Amunhotep II, who lived around 1430 BCE, a royal official had a tomb scene carved which showed him educating the young Amunhotep when he was still a prince. As the child prince sits on the official's knee, a number of servants enter the scene. One of them is carrying a lyre or lute, and the scene bears the caption, quote, Diverting the heart and seeing good things, song, dance, and music, rejoicing and gladness of heart. End quote. Such a scene is a nice reminder of the pleasures of life. Found in a tomb, it reminisces on the joyous days of the happy time in which the tomb owner was still on earth. It is enhanced even more by what the singers themselves sing to the young prince and the tomb owner. In a caption above the scene, hieroglyphs lay out the player's song. Quote, How prosperous are they, these years which the God decrees! May you pass them, endowed with blessing, happy and healthy. You exist, your voice is justified, and your enemy is fallen. You are in the house, united with eternity, partaking of everlastingness. End quote. The music of daily life becomes the music of eternity, and from the singer's words, we get a glimpse at the ideal afterlife. 
It is a life filled with song. The harp and the flute, together with clapping, were the quintessential sound of ancient musical performances. At least, that was the case in social and domestic settings. But when you get to the public realm, things change quite a bit. We're now going to look at two more instruments, used primarily in temple and military contexts. First of all, let's look at the sistrum. No discussion of music is complete without talking about the most Egyptian of instruments, the sistrum. Sistrum rattles made of bronze were the religious instrument of choice for priestesses and priests in the service of the gods. Sistra and Egyptian religion go hand in hand, and the sound is synonymous with the pharaonic world. Within the temple environments, a special class of worshipper served as the musicians of the gods. Every morning, these priestesses entered the sanctuary, and with a special rattle, they awoke the sleeping deities. That rattle sounded like this. That shimmering shesheshe sound is the sistrum. The word sistrum is Greek. The Egyptian's name for this instrument is sesheshet. As you can guess, that name is an onomatopoeia. It is pronounced how it sounds. Made of bronze and usually decorated with an image of Hathor, the sesheshet sistrum was the preeminent instrument of temple liturgy. There were actually two types of sistrum in Egypt. They're essentially the same, except for different decorations and names. The Sesheshet sistrum was shaped like a Hathor head, topped with a sort of gate or doorway. That gate, or naos, was the head of the sistrum, and metal poles stuck through it, which held the rattling pieces of bronze. The second type of sistrum is called the Sekem, and this is the sistrum that you probably imagine. It has a handle, a Hathor head, and then a tall curved archway, with bands of metal in between. If you glance at the Sekem system casually, you might mistake it for an Ankh symbol. The Sekem, or powerful system, made the same sound as the Sesheshet, and the two often appear together, one in each hand. We're not sure why there are two types, or what the exact significance is. If I had to guess, I might suggest that they had something to do with the two facets or aspects of Hathor. On the one hand, the Sesheshet might have appealed to the goddess in her temple where she was at peace. The Sekem, on the other hand, might have appealed to Hathor's alternate personality, Sekmet, the powerful lady. It's just an idea, a guess really, but the name Sekem does make me think of Sekmet, And if there is ever a goddess who needed placating with the soothing sound of a rattle, it might be that goddess. The sistrum was exclusively religious. We never see it in domestic settings, only in the temple or funerary rites. It is used by priests and priestesses, and in its sacred jingle, the sistrum provided the foundation of chanting, song, and invocation. Once again, modern musicians have made attempts to reconstruct the sound, 
And the following piece is an attempt to evoke the ancient ritual through a reconstructed Egyptian liturgy. The words are Egyptian, accompanied by the rattle of Sistra. temple singer or chantress would shake the sistrum during her morning ritual and her daily worship. The sistrum was metal and a set of short poles held metal coins or clappers, a bit like castanets that would rattle when shook. That's what made that she-she-she, and this sound was thought to awaken the divinities and alert them to human worship. As you can imagine, the sistrum was an essential part of the priest and priestess's job. The sistrum is an emblem of Hathor. It bears her image, and music more generally was associated with her. The singers themselves evoked the goddess in song, and a good example of this comes from around 2000 BCE, when a singer performed a short ditty for the great goddess. Quote, My body says and my lips repeat, Holy music for Hathor, music a million times. Because you love music a million times, music for you. End quote. The music for Hathor was sung by harp, by flute, and by sistrum. The sound of voices giving praise to the goddess must have been pleasing to her heart. Surely it was a great way to invoke her benevolence, or to placate her anger. Hathor, the lady of music, was the preeminent deity, offering gods to her glory was part and parcel of the musical norm. The sistrum, as I said, is purely a ceremonial instrument. We only see it in religious contexts and never in private performances. This is probably intentional. Sacred sounds are just that, sacred. And you don't want to profane the divine ambience by removing it from its primary context. In other words, the sistrum and worship cannot be separated. The last instruments of note are the drum and the trumpet. These were instruments played by men exclusively, and they mainly appear in the context of military processions. Occasionally a drum shows up in the temple or at a banquet. The trumpet, though, is only played by soldiers. Part of that is probably the noise. Trumpets are shrill, drums are booming, and while they complement each other quite nicely, they might overshadow other instruments. 
So the trumpet and drum seem to have been kept mainly in the military sphere, where their bombastic tones and rhythms could excite the soldiers and get the blood pumping ready for action. We don't know much about drummers, but we do know that they practiced hard. Around 1560 BCE, during the 17th dynasty, a man named Amhab, or In Celebration, became a military drummer in the army of King Karmosa. Amhab was a practitioner of the barrel-shaped drum, which was called a kemkem. Kemkem, another of those nice onomatopoeic names, were made of wooden boards glued and laced together into a barrel shape, rounded and excellently acoustic. Kemkem were played by hand, not with sticks, and from the biography of the drummer Emhab, we can get a sense of how much work went into being an ancient military performer. Emhab tells us of his life, quote, I was one who served his lord on his journeys, who was not cowardly over any command his lord gave. I filled my two hands with my agile strength. I competed with a rival in drumming, and said, I, Hemhab, shall compete with him in long pieces. I defeated him with my fingers, making seven thousand measures on the drum. Then I spent three years striking the drums every single day. End quote. Emhab proved his skills as a drummer by outlasting his rival in performance. 7,000 measures of drumming, we're not sure how many beats that is, cinched for Emhab the position of military drummer in King Karmos's army. From there, Emhab was the drummer on campaign, and for three years he played every day to inspire and order the soldiers in their tasks. A tale like Emhab's gives us a tiny glimpse of the ancient military drummer. They worked hard, practicing and performing regularly, to hone their skills and establish a degree of stamina that you would be hard-pressed to find today. From this little story, we get a wonderful sense of an ancient drummer's life. The other military instrument was the trumpet. Trumpets, or sheneb, appear in temple reliefs and military scenes. Only two physical pieces of these instruments survive. Around 1315 BCE, a pair of trumpets were buried in the tomb of a minor king named Tutankhamun. These delicate pieces, one copper, one silver, were recovered by Howard Carter, and in the 1930s, a military sergeant was permitted to play them live on the BBC. This is the first and last time the trumpets were ever played. In a moment, we will hear them. The two trumpets of Tutankhamun have noticeably different tones. The silver one is much higher than the copper. Played at the same time, they might have made a complementary sound, in the same way that a flute could be played low and high depending on the circumstances. 
In the context of a military procession, such trumpets would have rung out clear and shrill, and provided a clarion call for all to hear. I won't keep you in suspense. Allow me to present the only time when an ancient Egyptian instrument has been played for the modern world to hear. The trumpets of the pharaoh Tutankhamun, lord of the crowns, king of the south and north, son of bread. That was the silver trumpet of King Tutankhamun. We will hear the copper one when we reach that king in the narrative. Trumpets, sistra, harps, and flutes. These were the tools of the ancient musicians. Along with drums and clapping, they formed the basic elements of Egyptian music in its various forms. Whether it was the military parade, the temple ritual, or the domestic recital, Music came in different forms, and had different purposes. But in every major sphere of life, music was part of the daily rhythm. There is another instrument, of course, one which every human possesses to some degree. I'm talking about the voice. Singers were found in every sphere of Egyptian life, from the chantresses in the temple, to the chorus of warriors on the march, and the soloist or trio performing at a party. Traces of these professionals and their work survives today, and in the next part, we're going to meet the singers of Egyptian songs. Music was everywhere in daily life, in different settings and different functions. Although we cannot hear the melodies anymore, we can at least see some of the words which the ancients sang. Thanks to good preservation, a number of tomb and temple reliefs give us the lyrics to Egyptian compositions. In this second part, we'll take a brief look at the songs of Pharaonic Egypt. 
Music was frequently performed for the great gods. In the temple, priestesses with their sistra would sing songs to the divine glory. Gods like Osiris and Hathor enjoyed music, and in the Egyptian mind, the act of singing was connected with the idea of praise. We know this is the case because the word for praise and the word for song are the same. To praise is hesi, to sing is also hesi. So the words are cognate, and there is probably a conceptual link with praise or singing emerging from the same root. If that sounds strange at all, just remember, if you want to applaud someone today, you might sing their praises. So the words for praise and song are written as chesi. From that root, we also get the word for male and female singers, which are chesu and chesit, respectively. Curiously, there are no words for the musicians themselves, no word for harpist or flautist or drummer. They describe the act of playing music, such as playing a harp, but no separate word for the actual musician. It's curious, but there it is. The temple singers would sing the praises of gods, rattling their sashashet and sekem sistra as they did so. The rattling metal echoed in the cavernous halls and darkened sanctuaries, and the chantresses called glories to the great gods. One particularly good example is a song of praise for Hathor, again emphasizing that goddess's importance to music as an art. Although the melody of this song is lost, the lyrics survive today, and they go like this, quote, Come, make jubilation for the gold, Hathor, and good pleasure for the lady of the two lands, that she may cause the pharaoh Neb Ma'at Re, given life to be enduring. Come, arise, come, that I may make for you jubilation at twilight and music in the evening. O Hathor, you are exalted in the hair of Ray, in the hair of Ray, for to you has been given the sky, the deep night, and the stars. Great is her majesty when she is happy. End quote. I won't dishonor this song or your ears by trying to sing it. Suffice to say, singing in praise, or chesi im chesi, would have been a splendid thing. High voices, sistrum rattles, clapping, and the melody of harps. Songs like this were an adornment to the great goddess. Beyond the walls of the temple, songs were also sung in domestic settings, particularly at banquets and private recitals. There are many of these songs which survive in traces, but the most complete and the most famous is known as the Song of the Harper. The Song of the Harper survives in a number of different records, which vary slightly in their lyrics or their subjects. The most noteworthy feature of the Song of the Harper is what the various songs encourage the listener to do. Broadly speaking, these have a focus on the idea that you should count your blessings while you are alive. The Song of the Harper in its various forms focuses on pleasure, indulgence, and on staying present in the moment of life. After all, death is always a shadow on the horizon, and the singer reminds their audience to enjoy life while they can. The most famous example of the Song of the Harper comes from a tomb built around 2000 BCE for a man named Intef. This Intef may have been a nomarch or king during the first intermediate period, 
but that is beside the point. What is important is how the song offers a startling critique of some very old ideas. The song of the harper begins like this, quote, Fortunate is this prince, for happy was his fate, and happy his ending. One generation passes away, and the next remains, ever since the time of those of old. The gods who existed before me now rest in their tombs, and the blessed nobles also are buried in their tombs. But as for the builders of these tombs, their places are no more. What has become of them? I have heard the words of Imhotep and Horjadef, whose maxims are repeated intact as proverbs. But what of their chapels, their walls are in ruins, and their places are no more, as if they had never existed. End quote. This song is interesting. It offers a direct, cynical challenge to the ideas of eternity and immortality. It decries the collapse of funerary cults, and how even the wisest sage is eventually forgotten. Tombs decay, monuments crumble, and the singer watches as everything that is good is slowly lost, as if it had never been. Think about that for a second. A literate Egyptian, part of the most famous tomb-building culture ever, vocally critiques the notion of eternal rest, and describes how the monuments of great men, as famous as Imhotep or Hor-Jedev, are mere dust in the face of time. Four thousand years before Shelley wrote Ozymandias, the anonymous harper reflected on grandiosity and its inability to endure decay. That is unexpected. The first part of the Song of the Harper offers a fascinating challenge to Egypt's most famous tradition. While a thousand years of tomb building and monumental architecture testify to their hopes for the afterlife, the singer flips that and views the situation from a far more cynical perspective. It is surprising to say the least. The harpist's motivation is easy to unpack once we go a little further into the song. The musician is brought to this point by reflecting on the nature of life and its end, of how mortality robs us of all experience, and the veil of death remains, despite our efforts, totally impenetrable. Confronted with this barrier, the singer reflects, quote, there is no one who returns from beyond, that he may tell of their state, that he may tell of their lot, that he may set our hearts at ease, until we make our journey to the place where they have gone. End quote. These criticisms are really incongruous, considering that they're written in a tomb. Also ironic, because this is the most famous song to survive from Egyptian culture. Whoever this anonymous harpist was, they achieved a degree of immortality few songwriters can hope for. So there's sort of a contradiction going on here from our perspective. Even as we unpack the cynical lyrics, we are proving their core message wrong. Before we think it's all doom and gloom, that cynical introduction soon gives way to the real message of this song. After noting that the old sages like Imhotep and Horjadef are gone, the singer reflects on death more generally, and also what that shadow of mortality teaches us for the here and now. 
Quote, Rejoice your heart, absence of care is good for you. Follow your heart as long as you live. Let your pleasures increase and let not your heart grow weary. Follow your heart and your happiness. Conduct your affairs on earth as your heart dictates. For that day of mourning will surely come for you. The weary-hearted does not hear their lamentations, and their weeping does not rescue a man's heart from the grave. End quote. We should imagine this song being played to an audience, either a gathering or the master by himself. These kind of melancholic words are not what you'd call a stadium anthem, unless it's the end of Bohemian Rhapsody. But they are perfectly at home in an environment of contemplation, relaxation, and consumption. The singer's words are possibly meant to underscore the general levity of a party, to put a layer of melancholy at the bottom so that the audience can remember to make each moment count. Like the drone of one reed on the flute, the harpist's song is the foundation for the party, a touch of sombre reflection so that you appreciate the pleasures more. That's my interpretation of it anyway. There's been considerable debate about where this song was played and what its purpose exactly was. For early Egyptologists in the 1800s, there was nothing like this in secular literature, and they assumed that the song of the harper was something played at a funeral or in a tomb chapel. In this interpretation, the song is a lament for mortality and an exhortation to enjoy life once you leave the sacred space and return to the world of the living. This interpretation has fallen away a bit, and the Harper songs are now recognised as a more wide-reaching corpus that could be adapted to different situations for different audiences. Out of the dozen or so examples which survive of the song, they all share a common thread, and that thread can be summarised as follows. Quote, Enjoy pleasant times, and do not weary thereof. Behold, it is not given to any man to take his belongings with him. Behold, there is no one departed who will return again. End quote. The songs of the harper have been called Eat, Drink, and Be Merry songs, and the idea isn't too far off the mark. Mortality is normally a mere shadow in the mind's eye, carefully avoided. The singer of the song brings it to the forefront, confronts you with it, and he combines that confrontation with the true message. If life is short, it must be treasured. You can't take anything with you, and you won't return. So enjoy it now, and long may your pleasures on this earth endure. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M 
Noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I have a lot more to say about Egyptian music, and I will certainly do a Songs of Praise too at some point in the future. As long as this episode is, I feel I've only just scratched the surface of pharaonic music. Not only do we have about 3,000 years of trends and developments to deep dive, but we have a huge variety of artistic scenes and physical artifacts to explore. I've left out some really important parts, not least the evidence for how orchestras and bands performed, and the traces of songs that were sung by the ordinary folk, by workers out in the field. Those two topics, performance and folk song, deserve some more special research and investigation. I feel I need to learn more. So I will return to this topic in a mini-episode in the months to come. Now that we've looked at ancient instruments and songs, I wanted to get a sense of how a musician in the modern era might go about reconstructing or evoking the soundscape of ancient Egypt. In the next mini-episode, I conduct an interview with Mr. Jeffrey Goodman, a composer who has done a number of works evoking the soundscape of ancient Egypt and used ideas from their myths and their history to give a wonderful sense of place and song. This was the first interview I've ever done, and it was quite an interesting experience. Speaking with Jeffrey, I feel I gained a great understanding of how music works in its more theoretical underpinnings, and what a composer has to do when they are approaching a topic as distant in the past as ancient Egyptian sounds. That episode is releasing right about now. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.